Hi, I'm Tim Sinova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck Live, the morning-ish show. On today's episode, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by Dave Archuleta. Dave currently serves as the Chief Development Officer at New York Live Arts, found online at newyorkliveArts.org. Live Arts is a center of and for diverse artists devoted to body-based investigation that transcends barriers between and within communities. In his role, he is responsible for leading the organization's fundraising efforts and for the management and development of the Live Arts Education Initiatives. Prior to joining New York Live Arts, Dave lived in San Francisco, where he served as executive director of Joe Good Performance Group, was a consultant and producer in Berlin, held positions in the dance touring division at IMG Artists, where we both met in the early aughts while I was at the Parsons Dance Company, and in the Performing Arts Curatorial Department at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. He is also an independent music producer, and buried deep in Dave's bio, I discovered that for three years early in his career, he stage managed for the International Turntablist Federation. This, of course, sent me down a rabbit hole on the internet at 4 a.m. researching DJ gatherings and competitions. Without further ado, Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. <laughs> and the DJ makes <laughs> it makes so much sense now. There's so much vinyl behind you. Well, it's a combined collection of mine and my wife's, so it's not all mine. But the ITF, International Turntablist Federation, it, it was really about my friendship with the co-founder, Pasha Camber. So I ended up doing a lot of different things for them. Needless to say, sometimes I need to be here for your, uh, what do you call it, fractured anniversary? The Fractured Atlasversary, yes. A totally made up name to celebrate one's anniversary at Fractured Atlas. Yeah, thanks. Very cool. So Dave, how are you? How's the New York Live Arts community doing right now? What are you hearing from the field? As far as New York Live Arts goes, we are doing what most organizations like ours are doing. Our physical facilities were closed, obviously, and our staff is working remotely. And we've done our best to pivot to digital engagement. We're streaming a lot of full-length performances that would otherwise only be available to researchers or upon special request. Those are all on our website. And we're doing Instagram Live programming with Bill T. Jones collaborators and interesting people, including our performers from the Bill T. Jones Arnie Zane Company. That's on Fridays at 5 p.m. We call them Fridays Live at 5 on Instagram Live on the New York Live Arts and the Bill T. Jones Arnie Zane Company Instagrams. And I've been busier than ever as a fundraiser. I talked to some friends who are in different types of jobs and they're talking about picking up hobbies again and all these things that they're catching up on in life. And it's not that way for us in the fundraising. I mean, this is a really critical time for nonprofit organizations, especially if you have a physical facility and canceled performances, postponed performances. We're doing our best to manage the crisis and to mitigate the damages and losses. And at the same time, there's a lot of uncertainty about the future. So it's a bit of a strange holding pattern and we're just doing our best. But so far, we're committed to retaining all of our full-time staff. And that's something that we think is very important at a time like this. And we're all working very hard. You are, I think, our only guest whose role sits squarely in the fundraising office so far. Right, Tim? Am I, am I right about that? Possibly. Maybe. Yeah. I'm, I mean, we have a lot of people who fundraise, but are there pockets of money or are there strategies that you're using to sort of continue to engage and retain funds right now? Well, we're going to have to take some losses. And if there's any consolation for us, it's we know that every organization like ours is experiencing this and is going to take a big loss uh, at the end of this fiscal year. Some funders have really stepped up and in an amazing way and created 
relief funds, which we are able to apply for. The NEA also has a relief fund, which is part of the federal stimulus, and those guidelines have recently been released. We're going for that. And a lot of our institutional funders are also being very generous with how we redirect our grants to general operations or expanding timelines and things like that. But at a certain point, it's just going to be a loss that we all have to take. And the biggest question is what happens in the next year and how lasting the damage to our economy and to our sector is going to be. Dave, can you talk a little bit about what the transition was like? Your New York-based organization, Physical Space, I imagine most people were working there. Maybe there was a little bit of remote work to begin with. So from just a sort of workplace, transitioning to be entirely virtual or largely virtual, and then how this sort of what you did from a programming standpoint, you mentioned a lot of different things that are now online, but can you sort of talk us through what was going on behind the scenes and the transition for the organization? Of course, as a place that is devoted to live gathering, we know we can't completely fulfill our mission in a virtual sense. And there's a lot of romanticism out there, I think. And this is my personal opinion here. There's a lot of romanticism out there about what virtual and digital engagement is actually able to accomplish. And I think it's been actually very wonderful to see the kind of acceleration into the digital world from my colleagues, both at Live Arts and in other organizations. In some ways, we were prepared for this. My colleagues and I have been going to the digital marketing boot camp for the arts every year, and we've been increasingly working to put stuff online. And for a lot of my other colleagues, this is also just the first time that they've ever dipped their toe into digital programming and also digital ways of working, Tim. So in reference to how we're working together, I mean, we're using Google Meets for our staff meetings. We're using Zoom for some of our more public programming and Instagram Live, of course. It's been a real acceleration of something that I feel has been going on for a while, this move to digital. I think one of the interesting questions in my mind is really what it looks like when we come out of this and we return to whatever version of normal that may be. But we're experiencing a major disruption. And I think in a way we were prepared at Live Arts because we talk about disruption all the time. It's one of our themes. And we're always asking ourselves, what's that next disruption? We've seen so many disruptions to various economic sectors and industries around us. We've seen Ubers versus taxicabs and Airbnbs versus hotels. And we're a presenting institution, so we're under no illusions about the role we play, some could say, as a middle person, putting an artist on stage and having the audience come into a dark room, turning off the lights, everyone sits quietly, watches a performance and leaves. So we've been asking ourselves for the last few years, really, what's the disruption that we're not seeing that's over the horizon? And I think what this pandemic has brought home to me personally is that disruptions aren't always due to innovation. They can also be caused by crises. And crises naturally accelerate innovation. And it's that added urgency of a crisis that pushes us all to find solutions because it's really a matter of survival at this point. Yeah, we were joking around in our leadership tactical yesterday about we did all the scenario planning last year. (laughs) And it was like the one thing we didn't plan for was the pandemic. How could we have missed it? There's a part of me that feels like scenario planning at this point is almost futile because things are moving so quickly and just coming out of everywhere. But in terms of sort of how, if you were your own opinion to make a prediction about what this looks like on the other side, sort of how do we get back to normal and what does normal look like? Do you have any predictions for us on that one? 
I've been thinking a lot about it. As you said, you can't really predict right now. There's so much uncertainty and so much unknown. I mean, we're in the midst of a slowly unfolding natural disaster, and it's very different from other types of disasters that happen rapidly. And the damage is done, and then we can all come together and start picking up the pieces and rebuilding. We're still in the middle of this, and it's going to be going on for a while. The metaphor I've been using when I talk about it is it's a tornado moving in slow motion through your town, and you're watching it plow through your neighbor's house. You wonder if it's going to hit yours, but it's moving so slow you can't tell. And now's not the time really to actually be building anything because you don't know what's going to be next in its path. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of evidence and I'm a very data-driven person and there's a lot of evidence that should tell us what it might look like for us when we come out of this. You know, interestingly enough, Bill T. Jones, our artistic director, one of the things he asks us on our regular calls is, is this the new normal? We're programming online constantly mm -hmm. now. There is no more live space. There's no more physical space. And I think I try to avoid zero-sum thinking in that regard. It's not an either-or proposition to me. And in terms of the data, what we know is that arts organizations, some have been doing it very well, this digital thing. They've been doing a lot of digital engagement. They've been doing a lot of digital programming. And what the data shows there is that that kind of engagement is driving people to their theaters. It's driving them to their concert halls. And so if that past is evidence for anything that happens in the future, I think that we know that a lot of people are coming to the digital platform that haven't been there before. Some really love it, but it's not like we're just going to stay here in the digital world and not go back to our physical spaces. I think that's really important for arts organizations to maintain a digital presence. And I hope that we continue doing this kind of engagement because it is really a great way to bring people back to the art. And the outside world still matters. Um, that's the thing that's really important to me. Not to go on on this point too long, but I'm very privileged to be able to work from home. And I'm only able to work from home because there are other people out there who are keeping this thing running. And we call them essential workers. But really... In a crisis like this, in my mind, they're like soldiers and they're out there fighting for us and they're risking their life and limb. So this idea that we can maintain a digital presence and forget about everything else, I think it's a little bit illusory. And the problems we're experiencing both digitally and in the real world, it's always going to be about real world solutions. There's very little that we can actually solve online. And I don't mean that to sound cynical. But I really believe that it's important for us to maintain our presence in the real world and to think about all the realities that so many people who don't have this luxury are facing. You mentioned using Instagram Live, Zoom, Google Meet, and those things. Is there any conversation about perhaps building a solution that meets your needs for digital engagement over the long term? Or do you think you will continue to rely on those existing platforms? Well, I mean, I feel like those platforms have been serving us pretty well. Unlike Fractured Atlas, we're not a technology company. I know you all build some platforms and you've been building some great platforms. So I'd be curious to actually hear from you how a nonprofit arts organization might approach doing something like that. Right now, we're going where the people are. And yeah. the people are on Instagram, they're on Facebook, and we're doing our best to meet them there. I was talking to someone in the film industry who was saying that ITBS was dusting off an old digital film screening platform that they built years ago. It's very similar to Netflix Party, but never really gained traction. But the functionality actually is way cooler than Netflix Party because you don't have to have a Netflix account uh -huh. to sign in. So I'm just, I'm always curious about those platforms that are kind of like, we're dying a slow death. And then it's like, this is our time now. 
that's been something amazing to see because while so many people who are in this digital realm now and are real newbies, there's been people like you described who've been out there from the beginning. And I think they're getting a lot of attention right now and I think they deserve it. It's always easy to think like, oh, I'm here. I'm the first one. No, we're not the first. But like I said, there's been a rapid acceleration of people joining this platform and people who haven't been on it before. And many of them really love it. So that's interesting. I believe in the transparency of the platforms. So while we're putting up our full-length performances from the archives, I mean, I kind of personally feel like that's a wonderful thing to continue, whether we're in a crisis or not. I don't think it takes away from our ability to sell tickets or bring people into the theater. I would like, in fact, I'd like to see a live cam on stage Mm -hmm. for every performing arts institution broadcasting to a monitor on the street for everybody who walks by what's happening on that stage and let them see it for free because even though our industry is big for us, it's still small in the grand scheme of things in the economy and everything. So yeah. a lot of people walk by New York Live Arts and they don't know what happens in there. I've been having a lot of conversations about that piece around just sort of the accessibility component of everyone moving things online. Folks living with disabilities who can't get down to New York Live Arts or mm-hmm. people who don't live in New York City who financially can't afford to come here. Like the ability to really broaden your footprint is pretty amazing. That's very important. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things, as you're talking about singing, first mover advantage, whether you believe that's an advantage or not, but I think there's some platforms out there that were probably ahead of their time. And probably because people are like, we have it live. It's supposed to be live. You didn't have to wrestle with how do we actually translate this piece in ways that aren't live. And it kind of feels like this is, I mean, it's messy. People are trying to figure this out. and But what comes afterwards or after this or next, it's going to be... I think really interesting for just art in general mm-hmm. and, and art forms. Yeah. And I was talking with my, I teach a class at the new school on leadership and team building on Monday. And I was letting them sit and wrestle with what happens with the symphony orchestra. You know, you can socially distance or physically distance audience members, but a symphony orchestra, there's a hundred people who have to sit in relatively close proximity to each other to perform. And right. then you layer in as Lauren and I've talked about in some other settings, workplace safety where OSHA all of a sudden applies to providing a place that's safe for people to work. And then like when you might be able to start to be together physically sooner than you can provide a safe workplace where we can do this work. So think about what's next is is really complicated. Absolutely. And especially when it comes to gatherings like that. Bill T. Jones was set to premiere a new work at the Park Avenue Armory this month called Deep Blue Sea, and it was to have 100 performers and an audience of 880 people. That's obviously been canceled for the time being, and we're hopeful that it'll be postponed and rescheduled. But the idea, it's a valid question. What's even the appeal of going into a group like that right now for audience members? Mm -hmm. Everyone's very scared. At the same time, I've had people point out to me, you know, remember from there was a big flu that came before the Roaring Twenties. And afterwards, there was just kind of the slingshot effect. Everybody wanted to go out and everybody had to be together. And it was a great time for everyone. So it's really too early to predict. But Tim, what you talk about in terms of safety, occupational health and safety, I think it's true. We're going to have to reassess our workplaces. And more than that, we have to reassess our relationship to the environment and to each other. Because like I said before, what we're experiencing now is symptomatic, in my view, of larger problems of environmental and social inequity that are happening in our country and our world. We're experiencing a taste of 
not to be a bummer, but like there's going to be another pandemic. There's going to be other events like this. There are going to be natural catastrophes. There are going to be extreme weather events. There'll be famines. There will be pestilence. I mean, mm -hmm. these are all symptoms of the global climate crisis and refugee crises are also symptoms of that. And so I think it's really important for us Again, my personal view is not the institutional view. <laughs> my personal view is that it's very important for us as a society to understand that what we're experiencing now is symptomatic of larger problems that we really need to deal with. And we can say that, oh, a symphony orchestra is going to have to have all the players sit six feet apart if they want to get together. But ultimately, that's just putting a Band-Aid on something that we know is going to keep coming back if we don't yeah. deal with it. I was talking to someone the other day about Hurricane Sandy was supposed to hit D.C. directly. And that all the projections showed that the National Mall and all of the Smithsonian, a lot of the Smithsonian museums would be underwater. And it's I've always wondered why. Well, one, that came so close to happening. It just randomly hooked up the coast. But to my knowledge, there's still tens of millions of works that haven't been digitized yet. And D.C. Mm -hmm. lives on a swamp. And I keep wondering why is that it takes something like this for us to begin to make the shifts that we need to make to protect ourselves? And what is it about the human brain that makes that function so hard? Because I think you're right. I mean, it sounds dystopian, but I mean, the science says that this is the world we're living in, especially if we're on a coast. So I think you're spot on. It's a tough question. And hopefully they have other facilities, very secure facilities where they're storing some of those yeah. digitized works because our culture is fragile and things can disappear from history forever. You know, the mm -hmm. library at Alexandria was burned yeah. Thousands upon thousands of scrolls never to be recovered. Who knows what kind of history was lost? Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like in the constant battle, the urgent versus the important, it takes something like this for the important to now be urgent and to bounce it its way up. Although that only gets certain things probably in the queue. I'm going to take a hard right here. Dave, you happen to share a name with a former American Idol winner and... <laughs> Yeah, how'd you like that one, everyone? Yep. Yeah. Dystopian Ooh, to, yep. to American Idol. You yeah. just really hooked it. <laughs> yeah. I, I warned people in advance. We did. Um, we did. So I was remarking, I was having a conversation with a colleague. You and I met a couple months ago when we sell a fractured out of this office. And someone was like, yeah, were you meeting with an American Idol winner? I'm like, I bet that really makes it complicated for Dave to do a Google search on himself. Because the David Archuleta, at some point, I understand, won one American Idol in the past couple of years or so. I was <laughs> Second telling, place, second place. Oh, what's the second place? Oh, <laughs> even more challenging. I recently found out that there is another Tim Sonova who lives in Albuquerque. So Lauren is keeping an eye out for this other Tim Sonova. Just uh, the mustache. Huh? Just his mustache. <laughs> so, what That's is this funny. like to... Well, <laughs> It's the doppelganger thing. I think eventually all of us are going to encounter a doppelganger. Lauren, I think you mentioned you might yeah. have a doppelganger out there as well. I've wondered if it's just a matter, if it's a symptom of time and getting older that eventually someone with your name and perhaps even your occupation may come along. David Archuleta, second place in American Idol, actually when he was a contestant and doing very well, it was kind of like the height of all of this. Like I would call to make a hotel reservation because I needed to go somewhere for, for work and maybe like, oh, David Archuleta. Oh, wow. And like, no, 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 I'm not that David Archuleta, but I was tempted to parlay that into an upgrade or something here and there. But I, that's just not the kind of person I am. But I've actually known about this guy for a long time. So in the 90s, when I was working at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco, 
a young David Archuleta, age nine years old, was on a show called Star Search. Have you ever remember? Oh that? yeah. And this was pre-online, pre you know the internet was just in its very early stages. And a friend of mine, my colleague, said to me the next day, "Hey, I was watching Star Search last night. And there's a guy <laughs> named David Archuleta." And I was like, "No way!" So actually, I had known about him before he even got on American Idol. And there's a fun thing about it, which my wife, Megan Olson, who's a wonderful abstract artist, got a shirt, a David Archuleta shirt, like a fan <laughs> shirt on eBay. And she occasionally wears it to a party or something, <laughs> which is very fun. So they're a benefit. I love that this has been a week of random game show references. You with Star Search, which did really killed my self-esteem as a kid. There were so many talented kids on there. Oh, God. It was so like, good. oh, gosh. And then yesterday I hit my mic stand and it sounded like the gong. And I was like, what was that show, that game show? Oh, that yeah. had, it had a gong in it. Love that. Love that. And don't forget putting on the hits, which was the <laughs> lip sync show. That was amazing. Anyway. Yeah. I've been watching like old Soul Train reruns uh-huh. too, just like in the background. People were really doing it then. You know, I miss being able to go out a little bit. And it's fun to watch people out having fun. So, David, I've started asking folks this question. If you could choose one thing to leave behind and one thing to take with you in your pandemic suitcase, so work stuff that you had that you just, you're like, I'm done with this. I'm never doing this again. And new skills, strategies, thoughts, approaches that you want to take with you moving forward forever. What are you putting in your pandemic suitcase and what are you leaving behind? Wow. I mean, there's so many ways to answer that. So many layers. I mean, in direct response to the question, I want to keep the digital engagement. I want to keep the accessibility of the content and the accessibility of the artists and creators, because I believe that's the direction that artists and creative people are moving in. And I guess I would leave behind the idea that, I mean, it's the corollary, really, the idea that our places of gathering are only for people who are like us or only for the kind of cultural elites I hate to use that word because I'm really, you know, people of all stripes come to performing arts gatherings. But I would like to leave behind any idea of kind of high versus low. I've always been a person who enjoys both high and so-called low art. And so I really don't believe in those distinctions. I'd like to leave that behind. And if that means putting breakdancing on stage, and then I'm all for it. Put that alongside ballet. From a personal level, I'm taking my cat, my elder cat, Dan, uh, because when I think about if I do have to leave the apartment in a rush, obviously I'm ready to take my cat. And I guess I'll leave behind all the material things because it's our personal relationships and that's what's really valuable to me. All that vinyl's not fit in the suitcase. You can't take those <laughs> Unfortunately records. not. The vinyl's going to melt in the inferno, I'm <laughs> sad to say. Maybe one or two records, though. If you give me a choice than more than one thing, then what's, I will What's the album you take, Dave? What, what's oh, the album God, you take from I, behind you? So tough. I'd probably take one of the RZA hip-hop instrumentals. They're hard to find. And some of my favorite things to listen to are hip-hop instrumentals because mm-hmm. I'm also a music producer myself. I don't know. That's what comes to mind first. That's okay. great. Well, as we land the plane on this episode, Dave, what are your parting thoughts for us? My parting thoughts are I just want to give a shout out to all those people who are out there, out there while we're in here. And because I really admire all the people who are going to work every day and getting out there in this dangerous time. And I'd like for us to think about ways that we can take care of those people and make sure that they have at least the same kind of security and well-being and access to health care that our soldiers do. So that's my thought right now. And I just would like everybody to remain safe, 
remember this is a serious time and there are a lot of bleak things out there for us to deal with but ultimately if it means that we come out of this having more compassion for each other more understanding for our fellow citizens and people who are struggling out there in the world and for our planet and the things we need to do to really prevent stuff like this from happening in the future i want us to take the long view and really think about making big changes so that we can live in a better world right Dave, always a pleasure spending time with you. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Continue the Work Should Suck Live adventure with us on our next episode when we're joined by Frederick Joseph, founder and CEO of We Have Stories and creator of the Black Panther Challenge. Miss us in the meantime, you can download more Work Should Suck episodes from your favorite podcasting platform of choice and rewatch Work Should Suck Live episodes over on workshouldsuck.co. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.